M and K Talk YA now presents The Rose Society Part 2, a Young Elites novel by Marie Lu. Welcome back to M&K Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our YA fiction podcast. Yes, it is. <laughs> I never know what to say after that. I always am like, I feel like I'm supposed to talk next, but... Well, I always like pause expectantly, which doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> okay, first of all, this was only, what, 200 pages? Mm-hmm. I was trying to think back um, before we talked today about, you know, what was just the second half of this book, and I realized Enzo... They were just talking about bringing Enzo back. He hadn't even come back from no, the day last time we talked. So everything, like, so so much happened. So much happened in the second half of the Rose Society. I don't even know where to begin. Man, I have a lot of strong feelings. <laughs> <laughs> it's also interesting because I knew, I mean, you had told me before and I, a lot of what I had read about the series and, you know, in the first book, and a half we got a glimpse of it but now Adelina is definitely a villain oh, for sure like <laughs> like before I knew she was like tempted by the darkness but it like I sort of I, I still kind of was on her side you know I was like oh she probably you know she acted a little immaturely or you know whatever but I didn't really think of her as like a really bad guy I thought of her as more misunderstood but now I'm like nope you're just you're you're the bad guy you're just straight up evil <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is like the turning point for her where I don't know if she'll be able to come back from it yeah, because we've seen her, like, fully descend all the way into darkness. Not sure if you can come back from it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. although also, I mean, I obviously I just said it. I think she is, like, evil bad guy villain 100%. But I still feel like part of it is just her losing her mind. Like, it's not, it, it's not like that she... She still kind of, I feel like, wants to be good a little bit. But, like, those voices... And the illusions, like, kind of fighting back against her and all of that is, I think, just distorting her own worldview so much. I agree. And it's because it's like, and it's hard, it, it is hard calling her evil, too, because a lot of this is her gift. Like, this is what she was given. It's She can't help a part of it because it, yeah, her gift is so far out of control now that she cannot control her hallucinations. She's seeing things every which way. She has these weird whispers in her mind. It it is sad at the same time because she is is losing her mind and now she has pushed everyone away from her and she has no one to help her. What do you think about, because you said it earlier when you were just talking, you said it's her gift and I know that's how she refers to it and how the other elites refer to it. Um, But you know the whole difference between the you know the inquisition who thinks they're abominations and all this stuff versus you know in the skylands where they're really are seen as god's children do you think it's more of a curse or more of a blessing i think adelina's is definitely more of a curse yeah i mean and in a way almost a lot of them can say the same thing just because it makes them targets yeah and i mean with what Raphael has his uh what they learned about his research and what he found out about um, kind of 
their strength is their weakness and using their power too much is actually like ruining their their physical bodies too or minds and I guess I know. in this case that was like such a huge revelation that like their gifts are and at the end gonna kill them and it also made the name young elites come, sound kind of really sinister like they're all doomed to die young yeah no, for sure. I'm so I curious. Kind of, I think it would be interesting, you know, in like some myths and old tales, the gods interact with humans a lot more. Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like even though we talk about the like I kind of wish that like there was more, I guess she dreamed about the angels or whatever in the underworld, but I sort of wish like someone was talk like actually, like that there was more of the gods as a character or something in this book a little bit, because I'm so curious if they, like what they actually want to happen or what they're you know what, what's going on with them <laughs> that would be really actually cool if they somehow went i don't know to the afterworld or the underground and got to see some of these gods that they always talk about uh because yeah they always say like we are children of the gods but we were never meant to be and so if they were never meant to be and they were created by accident like what are the gods thinking right now like how do they feel about the young elites that would be really cool maybe we'll get that in the third book or even if there were like e- because I feel like in, I don't even know if it's Greek or Roman or both, because I always confuse my mythology. But um, You need to read Percy Jackson, is what you're saying. <laughs> I do, actually. I haven't read that either. Oh, it's so That's good. <laughs> it's so it's funny. On, it's on the list, the really long list. Oh, so this is somewhat related, but I my uh, research this week wasn't actually super related to the books. It was more related to books as a whole, <laughs> because I got this email about um how there's a word for stockpiling books you'll never consume you'll never read and I was like oh that word is my life is it (laughs) mnk it's a it's a Japanese word it's spelled t-s-u-n-d-o-k-u so I don't I don't know how to pronounce Japanese but sundoku or something like that and it comes from three different words it's like a play on words that started in the late 19th century and it's three words one that meant stack things, one that meant to leave for a while, and one that meant to read. But it's this, it's like, they're like, there's no direct translation in English, but it's like a common thing that people feel. And then I, so I was reading more and more about this. This is like the rabbit hole I went down because I just identified with it so much. And I guess in the 1800s in England, they also had a word, or this guy wrote a fictional wrote about a fictional neurosis called bibliomania. Oh. And it was, like, for people who suffer from obsessively collecting books. And he had... Oh, wait, I need to find this list. He had, like, a whole list of <laughs> symptoms and everything. And people were, like, really worried back then that, like, that if they collected too many books, it was a problem. So but- he said... <laughs> He said, the list of symptoms included first editions, true editions, black letter printed books, large paper copies, uncut books with edges that are not sheared by binders tools, illustrated copies, unique copies with Morocco binding or silk lining, and copies printed on vellum. But it's basically just books. Yeah. Oh, but was it more of like books that you know you'll never read? So like uncut books? And apparently it... They also thought that it was, like, if you were collecting books, then you were, like, keeping them from other... Kind of what you just said. Like, if you weren't reading them, you were keeping them from other people (laughs) who could read them or something. And then, eventually, they, like, changed their minds, and they were like, actually, it's okay. (laughs) 
I'm just curious as to like what people were so afraid of. I mean, it's not like it would kill you. And I probably should have done, as you know, I tend to go like um, 40% of the way to like <laughs> spark some interest without figuring it all out. But I think um, like when I was first reading it, it sounded like he, like the guy who wrote it just wrote this fictional book. So maybe he wrote it like as a joke, but then people all thought about it <laughs> and were like, oh no, I might have that. <laughs> I mean, I guess I could see if it was, like, back in the day when books were really rare and, like, printing was difficult. So if you were, like, stockpiling books and buying them up so no one else could read them, that would be a problem. But I I, I like that they had symptoms of (laughs) this disorder. Well, and then it was um, by 1906 things had changed because the Metropolitan Museum of Art Um, basically said book collecting was no longer a negative thing and it started to recognize that there was kind of like a science there was like a science to it too like book collecting some people had a skill and other to like actually find like the gems whereas other people were just readers oh like I don't know so it was just kind of an interesting I just like went down this rabbit hole and I was like is this a good thing or a bad thing that I have too many books I'm never gonna read I think it's a good thing. Don't they say that, like, kids who come from houses with physical books in them do better in school? And it's not so much, like, if you read to your kid, it's just having books in your house that makes the difference? Yeah, and I wonder how that's going to change or what with ebooks and stuff. Oh, my gosh. I don't know. I also read about that project where Google was trying to scan every single book. Mm-hmm. I've read and, about that, too. And did they give up on it? I don't know. Because it's just so, it's just such a crazy idea to scan every single book. I wish I had the stat off the top of my head, but if you look at like the number of books published daily, it's ridiculous. There's so, like, we're constantly, there's more and more books being produced, all, new books being produced mm-hmm. all the time, not to mention all the books there's ever been. Oh, I know. Well, I actually, I also read, or um, there was a video, but I read the transcript. Um, Peggy Noonan gave a, commencement address at the Catholic University of America Mm. and part of what she talked about was um, kind of a call for everyone to keep reading and she talked a little bit about it in terms of like politics and stuff where she was basically saying our politicians are getting dumber and the way that we really learn is by reading and she you know on the political trail and stuff she was like so many people read the headlines and don't have the whole story or saw the movie but didn't read the book or you know and I think one of the most interesting points she made was when you watch a movie or something like that, you're a passive learner, so you're listening and you're watching, but you're not really encountering it. So she said, a movie about the Cuban Missile Crisis is dramatic, but reading about the Cuban Missile Crisis puts your brain to work and you're presented with a dilemma and you start thinking through, like, you know, the like you think about it more as mm-hmm. you're reading and it's like good work for your brain. And anyways, I just like things that tell me, that talk about either having lots of books or that reading is good. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. So uh, that's that's most of the research I did this week. So as you can see, it's very related to Adelina's quest. Um, <laughs> you really do have a, a penchant for doing really good research that's completely not related in any way to the plot. But I really like it. I, I call myself the queen of unreli- or useless random facts. Um, <laughs> I really Okay, this is the one thing I did find out. And we okay. talked about this very briefly um, at the beginning, I guess. But I was trying to look up, because um, you know how when Enzo and, I forget the queen's brother's name right now, but how they... The queen has a brother? Yeah, the queen, um, the other oh, queen's brother. May's brother? brother? Tristan. Tristan, right. Tristan and Enzo, who both came back from the 
dead have like you know how they get the black eyes and they have this sense of evil to them and I was that's like one of the things I'm most curious about is like what does that mean so I was looking into um people who've gone to the underworld and come back and like old stories and stuff okay and I learned there's a Greek word for the descent into the underworld called catabasis okay and it means going down followed by going up so if you go to the underworld and you don't come back then you just died which I think is obvious but um (laughs) It talked about how it was part of a hero's journey back in, like, Greek stories. If they went into the underworld, they were usually seeking some kind of quest object, Mm -hmm. and their ability to enter the dead and come back out of it was usually proof that the hero had some kind of, like, moral high ground. And then I was like, this isn't really related to Enzo or Tristan at all, because they didn't (laughs) come back. They were pulled back. And then I think I started looking up the origin of words and found that stockpiling books thing. So that's all for (laughs) How far I got in everything. Oh, you didn't research, like, any people, like, any figures who went down and came back? Well, I mean, I did a little... Obviously, like, one of the big ones was... Orpheus, right? Yeah, Orpheus. And then uh, Jesus is another example, because in Catholic teaching, they say the three days between when he was killed on the cross and when he rose from the dead, um, that he went to hell for those three days. So that's he went to hell? Part of the, story yeah he died and went to hell and then came back to life why 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 did he go to hell i think it and this is i never heard that that i'm not a good enough catholic um i think it had something to do with the reason like jesus died for our sins and whatnot was to like reopen the gates to heaven like before jesus was here like no one was able to get into heaven for a while Hmm. and so he had to go like part of it was like the human experience of dying and whatnot so I don't, I don't know enough. Again, I don't know enough about it. I should have read more. Slash, I should probably just know that. I think that's like a tenet of my. I never knew that. And I was raised Catholic too. <laughs> just gonna pop down to hell for three days, come back. Well, <laughs> I would love to re- to um, learn more about other like Greek or mythological people who went to the underworld and came back, because um, I only know of Orpheus and Persephone. Right? She like goes back and forth all the time. Um, but I also did a little bit of research of real life people who died and came back. (laughs) Okay, tell me more. Um, uh, so I was just researching, like, people who said that they had, that were, like, declared physically dead and then somehow by miracle came back to life. Okay. And the weirdest story that I read was, um, so there was a 95-year-old Chinese woman um, whose name was Li uh, Zufeng. I'm sorry, I probably butchered that, but that was her name. And um, a neighbor found her motionless and not breathing in her bed. And she think that she thought that she suffered a head in her, um, injury. So um, this woman was declared dead. And um, as tradition, they placed her in a coffin and they put it in her living room so that people could come and pay their respects before the funeral. That was like their tradition. Okay. But the day before Li Zufeng was supposed to be buried, they found her coffin empty and they discovered her in the kitchen cooking. And her excuse was she just said that she slept for a long time and then she woke up and she climbed out of her coffin and she said she was really hungry so she wanted to cook herself something to eat. So when you wake up in a coffin, you're not like, yeah, you're not freaking out. Like, 
oh my god i'm gonna cook your first question is just like oh i could really use a sandwich (laughs) i really need some pizza right now although let's be real i'd probably be like i i'd probably be like that but came back from the dead would you crawl out of a coffin and not like think no, about No, first I would life. flip out. If I woke up in a co- also being in a coffin would just be it's not like you were like laid out on a bed and people just no. thought you were dead. And it was it's closed. Like, yeah. She said she had to push really hard to get out, but then she was like, "Well, I might as well get something to eat." So did no, they I say was she like, was different afterwards? I don't think so. I think I think she was just hungry. <laughs> But the worst part, too, is that, I guess, according to their traditions, I don't know if this is Chinese tradition or if it was just particular to this family, but um, after a person dies, all their belongings are burnt. So not only did she wake up after almost being buried alive, but all of her possessions were gone. How long later did she wake up? Like, how long was she dead for? Oh, um, like five days. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and then she woke up and all of her possessions were burnt. Oh man, it's always kind of like even um, I don't know, like Romeo and Juliet or whatever, where you know they take poison and then they like look like they're dead for a while and they came back. And mm-hmm. It's just it's kind of weird the way. When are you really dead? <laughs> and how do you know? I, I yeah. hope. Oh God, I would want them to do something like if they're not sure, just like do something to make absolutely sure, like just a stake through the heart. Come on, like. I do not want to be buried alive. You want alive. them to kill you? You wouldn't want them to, like... I mean, <laughs> if it yeah, was, being like... Buried, I mean, I guess right before you're buried alive, potentially, sure. Yeah. Didn't... Isn't there, like, a tradition where people do things like that just just in case... Or they, like, leave food in the coffin or something in case... Oh, I think I have heard that before. Yeah. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll do more research on that tomorrow... On that next week. See, you're so much better at research than me. <laughs> or, or maybe I just like morbid things more than you do. I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. Well, I mean, that was part of the problem with... Because I did... I Like, on Wikipedia, I found a list of, like, a bunch of people from... Fictional people who came back from the dead in these stories. But they were all, like, these heroes. And that's when I was like, Psh, Our people aren't heroes. Like, even the good guys aren't really that good. And I don't really like... You know? Yeah. Good. All right. I'll do more research about being buried alive. So, you know... You know how we like to talk about our biggest fears? Yeah. One of my biggest fears is to like be in surgery or something and not be actually put out. You know like that movie Ugh. where where you're like still awake but yep. you can't like actually talk or something? And for some reason that's what the being buried alive thing reminds me of too. Okay, so I also I hate needles, so when I got my wisdom teeth out, which I'm still convinced my wisdom teeth were fine, the x-rays that they showed me, I was like, they look like they're going to fit my mouth and that they're straight, so I don't know why you're taking them out of my... But whatever. <laughs> but I told them I wanted them to knock me out before they did the numbing thing. Oh, yeah. I didn't want to see the needle. <laughs> and they did, luckily. But I was, like, still fading when I heard them, like, preparing the needle, and I was really worried that I was going to actually oh, no. be awake and just not be able to do anything. But then I woke up and was groggy and probably said silly things but your sisters didn't pretend like there was a zombie apocalypse (laughs) did you see that video a while ago i don't think i saw that one oh i'll I'll send it it to you it's really funny (laughs) they pretend that there's a zombie apocalypse and their sister is like high on like pain killing drugs and she completely believes it because she's so loopy (laughs) (laughs) oh man that reminds me of <laughs> Taryn <laughs> and how even when they took his powers away because of all that like self-inflicted pain he stuff he did to himself I'm guessing or just because he's 
Taryn, and he's motivated by whatever, um, how he, like, still was able to fight back for so long. Oh, during the battle? Yeah, when she turned on him. Anyway, sorry, did you have more uh, people who came back from the dead story? No. (laughs) 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 What else did I... Oh, I also researched mercenaries a little bit more. Okay. Just very briefly, because I was intrigued by Sergio. And um, I did find that in the 14th century Italy, which is roughly when this young elite story takes place, there was a band of mercenary soldiers in Italy who called themselves the White Company. Okay. And it kind of reminded me of Sergio and his men because they were, um, they became known as one of the most elite mercenary armies of Italy. And they were famous for surprise attacks. And also they were famous because they were willing to fight at night and in harsh weather. And I guess other mercenaries were like, no, we're not going to do that. Thanks. That would be like an interesting job description. Like, we'll kill for you, but not if it's under 40 degrees or something. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If there's snow on the ground, it's not going to happen. I have to sleep. I get to sleep until 1030. Yeah. But they made their money by auctioning off their services to the highest bidder. And that was when Italy was divided into a lot of city-states. So there was, like, they had a lot of people competing for their services. And then when they weren't unemployed, they made money by raiding nearby villages and towns. So sounds like they had a great life. But I don't know. Maybe that was him and his men were inspired that by that. That's so interesting, I think, because when you think about, like, the role that loyalty plays in something or, like, people who are fighting for a cause they believe in or whatever versus, like, you know, someone who's fighting for a paycheck at the end yeah, of Yeah, the they said it was, well, they described it as the second oldest profession in the world, in, in history. Cause I it was, mean, I guess it doesn't, like, shock me. It's just, like, weird to think about. Yeah, I know. It, I mean, it was just like an extremely common way for men to earn a living was just like fighting for a cause they had no no interest in. <laughs> I wonder how that like changed, you know, like at the end of the day when they, if you lost, but it wasn't like you're like, you know, it's like, well, darn, but it's not like, oh, I really still got a paycheck. In. Yeah. And then there's probably be less of that like kind of even what um, Adeline is doing now, that, like, need for revenge, because, or, I don't, maybe there'd be more, I don't know, but I would feel like, it's not like I have to, if we all agree that I won the fight, I wouldn't have to, like, convince you that I'm the winner the same way, as if, yeah, you know, you're fighting against, I don't know, I don't know what I'm saying, I'm rambling. <laughs> also, um, like, the downside to being a mercenary is, um, if you are captured, you are, do not get the same um, treatment as like a standard POW would, and you also lose your citizenship. Why? If well, like because let's say you're you you are a citizen of a certain country and you lend your services out to like a different country to fight for them, that's considered treason. Oh, okay. So, but what if what if you were working for a particular government? Oh, and they, like, set you out? Well, then you'd be protected because you that's, like, being a spy. Yeah. Well, I guess, but then also technically... And you're still working would, for... Yeah. Yeah. Be not a mercenary the same way. <laughs> yeah, but I thought that was interesting that you would... Yeah, you'd lose your citizenship. Interesting. That is interesting. So... So should we uh, go be mercenary somewhere? 
I mean, anyone who's like a freelancer is technically. <laughs> if I can set my own, if I can set my own hours and <laughs> work from home. <laughs> I mean, consultants and like freelancers are like essentially modern day mercenaries. <laughs> like they work for themselves. Or what about like hackers? You know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Who like yeah. I would, yeah, I was a freelancer for a little bit, and it would have been a lot more fun to call myself a mercenary. <laughs> I wonder if there's any more elites in the group of mercenaries. I still feel like we don't even have a good sense besides um, the Rainmaker. What's his name? Sergio. Uh, but we don't have, he's the only mercenary we really know at all. Right. That's like, true. How, ma- how many are there? Oh, there's like a whole sh- bunch of ships of them. Yeah, but how, like, how much is that? I have no idea. That's a really good question. And, like, I don't even know, I realized, because, you know, when they were in the palace and she was, like, she was passing by the Inquisition people and nervous about it because she's never been able to pass by them before that smoothly. And she was like, at least I have my army there. And I was like, how many Inquisitors are there? How many mercenaries are there? Like, Like, I just feel like I couldn't get a good picture in my mind of how big the forces are. I feel like the most we got was um, Maeve's army. Oof, and they met a bad end. I felt like, in my mind, I had a really visual of, like, just ships and ships and ships and ships. I think that honeycomb analogy was oh, kind of a cool yeah. one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then Enzo burned them all down. Yeah. That was, cr- their power struggle between the Adelina and Enzo is, like, it's really kind of interesting and scary at the same time, because... Like, when they said that when he came back, they brought him back to life, and she was bound to him, and they said, he is an elite, and he's so powerful, he may be able to control her, not the other way around. So I liked that you saw them, and it was so sad, because they were trying to kind of reconnect on the feelings they had for each other, and they just couldn't, because they were doing this, like, struggle for dominance, and, and, like, neither one was willing to give in. Yeah, although I still just, I don't get him, and... I feel like I'm even more confused by him now that he came back. Like, he didn't really say anything after um, he went with the daggers, did he? Well, he also, like, took it really well when they were like, okay, we have some news for you. You died, and then we brought you back to life. He was just like, oh, okay. (laughs) And that's that's another thing where, I mean, whatever... She didn't tell him very much, and she probably could have, should have told him more, especially because she knew the daggers would eventually tell him more, or she'd have to explain. But then, with what everything the dag- like, I just, I feel like he was very easily swayed, still. <laughs> to the daggers? Yeah. Well, no, because he, they told him what Adelina did to Raffaele in the arena, and that's when he was like, I don't trust you. You're evil. You killed Gemma, and used your powers against Raffaele, and I mean... There was no doubt in my mind that if he found out what she did, he would go with the daggers. I think he would always choose Raffaella over Adelina. I don't know. I mean, I guess because I don't really believe they were ever in love in the first place, but if he really thought they were in love, I feel like that seems like a kind of crazy thing to not even hear her out. Yeah. I don't know, but he was always like wary of her, too, from the beginning. And then to see her actually kill Gemma, which was... I was going to say, after, yeah, after the actual battle, like, I get it. And after she forced him to do, you know, like... To burn the ships. Like, at, right now, I totally get it. But I sort of feel like when she... Like, I, I feel like she should have told him more at the beginning. Yeah. When he first a, came back. She does a lot of withholding that is, like, never ends well. 
But then she, pro- but then it seems like every time she withhold, she withholds and it doesn't end well. Instead of being like, I probably should have shared something sooner. She's like, I shouldn't have told them anything at all. Yeah, <laughs> she has like the opposite reaction. But but I liked how Maggiano was trying to tell her like you are living in a fantasy world, or he says, like, you're living in a world of illusions. Like, you think that you can have what you had with Enzo, but he will never be the same. He's he's not the same person as he was. Like, you're trying to force something. You're trying. To, you're in love with something that doesn't exist. And I think he's absolutely right. Yeah. And also, I was really sad when Gemma died because she was one of my favorite characters. I know. Although, I also, I mean, like, it's not like she went out and killed her, though. First of all, she died because she was hit by lightning, right? Yeah, but she, like, she was originally going to let Gemma go, but then Gemma, like, tried to shoot her with an arrow, and that, like, enraged her, and so she... Yeah, I mean, she she has some serious issues, but I'm also saying, like, they went, they showed up with a ton of ships trying to take over a country, and then they're, like, mad that people fought back and someone died, like... Well, she chased her into the storm on the back of the Belira, which... Also, that's a really cool creature. Can we talk about those? For I a know, bit? but they were on different sides of a of a fight. Like I just feel like it was a like, and it wasn't a war that she started. They showed up looking for a fight, and then she yeah got a little carried away with someone she knows. But like, it's not like she just like ran into Gemma in the alleyway and then killed her, or like yeah, that's true. Or that she like sought them out and whatever. Like I feel like like I feel like they're kind of being poor sports. <laughs> They lost the battle. They start. They started. They brought on this war themselves. I think a little bit, and now they're like, "Wait, you're not playing by the way we want you to play." Yeah, and it's almost like they're fighting for the same thing. Like they do not need to be enemies. That was what was driving me nuts. It was like you could work on the same side. Like, why are you even fighting each other over nothing? Um, it's funny you say that. So I really, when we've talked about this before, I really like those um, excerpts from things at the beginning of the chapters. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite ones this time is on page 255, and it said, they waged war for decades, never realizing that they were fighting for the same cause. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Also speaking of those, and I'm jumping around a lot, but um, one of the last ones was about her rule. Did the you, what? Did you oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it says something about, I can't find it right now. Oh, here it is. A cruel queen does not mean an unsuccessful one. Under her guidance, Kenetra changed from a glittering gem into a clouded stone, and her empire became one to rule all others, a darkness that stretched from sun to sky to sea. Or from sun to sea to sky. (laughs) The empire of the wolf. And I guess we don't know for sure that's the white wolf, but I'm assuming, especially given that's the chapter where she, like, is officially the winner. (laughs) No, I'm sure it is. That's, I wonder if we'll get more of her being queen then in the third book. I kind of hope so. Yeah, and learn more about how she rules. Because that whole description, and I know I keep making these connections, and it's probably just because we just read the Lunar Chronicles, but it kind of reminds me of Levana because that's kind of how I felt Levana was. Like, she definitely was cruel, but in some ways, I think she was a good leader. Not like an inspiring or whatever leader, but I feel like some of the moves she made made political sense. Well, it's like um, uh, it's like the Machiavellian rule. Like, do you want to rule by? Is it better to rule by fear or is it better to rule by love? Mm-hmm. And both are effective. It's just you know, which one? Well, what are you gonna do? And she clearly rules by fear, not love. 
I mean, she legitimately says that basically multiple mm-hmm. times near the end where she's like, I realize that like love doesn't work and I can get everything I want by using fear. Ugh, that's so depressing. And she's so isolated now too. Like her sister left her. That was like the huge part at the end when Violetta is like, I am done with you. I'm not, I can't be around you anymore. Like you are too far gone. So her abandonment is like, it makes me afraid for her. Except I still, I didn't think she should have abandoned her. I think she should, I also don't think she should have gone about it the way she did. I think she should have done it with a more people in the room so that, you know, like with Maggiano or something around too. Why? Where she, well, because first of all, the other young elites are also going to be affected by the news that she was sharing. Oh, that's right. The, the news that the, their powers are killing them. Yeah. Like, I feel like they should be made aware of that too. And then I also feel like if they had ha- like had more of a discussion about it, maybe, I mean, I think she still would have gone off the rails, but then Violetta could have taken her powers away and like the boys could have helped because they have like fighting background could have helped maybe physically restrain her until she like calmed down or oh. whatever. But I don't know. I don't. Yeah. Again, I think they're just so afraid of her. Yeah. Like, the only thing they can think of to do is, is to put as much distance between her and them as they can. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because I still feel like I feel like her last remaining ally, kind of like actual ally, is Maggiano, right? And she's pushing him away, pushing him away, pushing him away. So yeah, but he hasn't quite left yet. No, I think he's and still I don't there. know that he's close enough to help, but he, yeah, she's yeah, she's pretty alone. Because I, I think Maggiano still likes her, and I know like their relationship kind of took it went a little bit deeper in this second half. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I like him for her because I think he aligns a lot with joy and he can bring out goodness in her, kind of like Raffaele did. Mm-hmm. But um, they're also just so different because you get when you, you get a little bit more of Mangiano's backstory where he talks about um, how he was an orphan brought up by priests and the priests kept the Malfettos um, in their care because they thought their presence helped them speak to the gods, but they were really cruel to him, so he let, he ran away. And Adelina was like, her first reaction, she was like, well, why didn't you go back and burn the priest's house to the ground? Because that's what I would have done. Yeah. And he was like, what good would that have done? Like, he has no desire for revenge. He just, like, wants to move on. Whereas if that had happened to her, she would not have let it go. She would have gone back and destroyed everything to get her revenge so like I thought that moment was really important to kind of highlight the differences between them because I don't know how much longer their alliance or even their love for each other will last with them being so different yeah because she says she doesn't say it out loud but she thinks to herself when he says what good would it have done she said it or she thinks it would have warned them all of what happens when you defy the children of the gods my god she's so crazy and then and then she mutters we must have different alignments to think such opposite thoughts and then she's the one who says she thinks he aligns with joy and then that's when they kiss the first time or the only time have they kissed again yeah i think so when was was the other time i forget Mm, actually i don't know i feel like they keep having these just like almost moments i know i know and i really want them to get together because i feel like that's the only way that can help like, she needs help, clearly. Mm-hmm. She can't be alone. Like, she needs someone to, like, call her back from the darkness. And 
without him, I don't know. Yeah, but I don't know if... I think she needs him in order to do that, but I think she also needs her sister. Yeah, I agree. Where is Violetta going to go? I know. And what's going to happen? Is this just is this just another division? Are there not going to be like three factions? Oh gosh, I hope not. <laughs> well, now she has... Okay, so now she also has Taryn on her side as a captive, and that is a very interesting alliance. I loved when she like sought him out and was like, okay, I think I can manipulate him into working for us. Because that is like... And speaking of people who've lost their minds, he was losing it. He really was. But it's also the idea of like, um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Have you ever heard that say that he, saying? Yeah, I have. Yeah, that's a good yeah. example. And that's like the perfect example of this. So I really want to see more of them working together. Because he... He, like, <laughs> he's completely lost it. Like, his, um, his love for Julieta is, was turned into such an obsession that he ends up murdering her. Like, can we talk about that for a minute? Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had, I found it really hard to believe, first of all, that, like, Adelina shows up and disguises herself as Julietta and he falls for it so hard because it's not like she showed up as Julietta. She showed up as Adelina and then transformed herself in front of him into Julietta and he was like completely fell for it. And I was I think that just like goes to prove like how wackadoo he already was. Unhinged. Yeah. He's completely unhinged. And then when she painted that um, fake marking in her hair and Oh yeah, that convinced was... him that she was actually a Malfetto and had been hiding it from him. I I was just like, yeah, it was a good example of how unhinged he is because under <laughs> well, the thing I I didn't get a little bit. I mean, I sort of do. I guess the army. I mean, I get the army follows their army leader or whatever. So the Inquisition followed him because he used to be their leader, but he had already been stripped of their title, and I'm kind of surprised no one intervened to help or protect the queen at all. Oh, that's a good point. Well, because it didn't, I mean, and part of it is just we didn't see him with the rest of the Inquisitors that much to know if they were truly, like, loyal to him, then that makes sense. But I just, I didn't know until that moment that he, like, had such loyalty from the other soldiers. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he must have. But then again, it's like the Inquisition kind of is the Inquisition. They don't work for the crown, do they? Like, is she... She's not their duty to... I felt like they did work for the crown. I guess they do. I don't know, because they're always the ones who were guarding when Raphael was there and stuff. And she, in front of them, had already, like, basically, you know, stripped him of his title and kicked him out. And no one helped or defended or did anything. Like, I don't know. I just, I kind of felt like, oh, I guess they're on his side all of a sudden. Not all of a sudden, but I just didn't know (laughs) going into it. That he had such loyalty. Yeah. And now they're all following Adelina. And there is no Julieta. I wonder if it'll shift again. I wonder if they'll, like, if the, um, the young, or the Dagger Society will, like, get Taryn on their side because now he hates Adelina, or if (laughs) what's going to happen between Enzo and Adelina is their bond, whatever, and... I don't think Taryn would ever work with Raffaele, but I think he would work with Adelina because he, like, he kind of feels like a kindred spirit with her, you know? Like, he says that she 
is more like him than any of the others because she understands what malfettos are. I, th- I think he somehow feels like she also believes that they're abominations. Yeah. And, you know, there's a darkness in both of them. So he, I think he definitely sees her more of a potential ally where I think he views Raffaele in the daggers very much as a threat that should be taken down. I think it was also interesting. I think the scene with her sister at the end was just such a good scene to paint kind of what the next hurdle is and I thought that the two of them both said things that I was kind of surprised they hadn't said it all yet before like even when um when Adelina said basically like I've had to do all your dirty work for you and things like that like I don't know their relationship is just one of my favorite relationships to look at I'm I'm sorry I'm all over the place again but (laughs) well there was a lot going on in this book so (laughs) And I think, was it was it her who said it too? Like, the only way that we can be free from dying young is to, like, stop using our powers or get rid of them altogether. I'm kind of curious yeah. to see. I sort of feel like I agree with her. And the only way I know that there's an answer to that right now is by her using her power to help get... Like, I'm curious if she'll end up, like, sacrificing herself to get rid of her sister's power. Like, save her sister and oh. die in the process or something. Like, if that's, like, going to be the trade-off eventually. Because if she takes away other people's powers, then she's using her power. Yeah. And I'm also, like, I'm also curious to see what um, issues manifest in the young elite. So we know that, like, Lucent's bones are hollowing out because she controls the wind. And her marking is hidden and that it's her bones are, like, unnaturally thin and they are getting more and more hollow. So I'm really interested to see, like, what is going to happen with the other elites. Like, what's going to happen to... I don't know, Maggiano, like, what's going to happen? We already kind of see what's happening with Adelina. <laughs> but, like, and it seems like it depends on how powerful you are. Like, the more powerful you are, the quicker you will deteriorate. Is it how much you use your power or how powerful you are? I think they said how powerful you are because, remember, Violetta was like, I'm not powerful. So, you know, eventually something might happen to me, but I feel like I have more time than you do. So I'm just, like, curious to see what... It's what's going to happen to them. And if they can stop it. And again, it still surprises me that she doesn't think she's powerful because she's the one who's been actually using her gift to hide Adelina's super powerful gift, at least in certain moments. Yeah. Um, from their father for years and years and years. And That's true. It was also, she did realize, it, so even though she kept having these realizations where she said, like, um, you know, love and blah, blah, blah don't matter. It's just fear. I can get everything I want from causing fear around me, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at the end when she's sitting on the throne she said she was waiting for the satisfaction and triumph to hit and she just kept waiting and waiting and waiting so even though she believes that she's not actually being satisfied by this the way she's approaching life well can she she's entirely alone she's so alone no I know but I mean if she was truly truly evil would that be enough or what is it I think yeah I know mm. because like being truly truly evil is like not having empathy right what like serial killers and you know sociopaths that's their problem like they don't have any empathy for others and I don't think that's the case with her I think she does I think she does have goodness in her I think she just she doesn't know how to react to it or like how to yeah and she doesn't trust yeah she doesn't trust anyone which kind of makes sense because of all the terrible things people have been doing to her like I, I can't say I would be super trusting in her position no I definitely wouldn't be ugh Oh, and then we learn more about, like, um, Maeve and her brother and that whole thing with um, 
Lucent because I really wanted her and Lucent to get together. But I don't know. It seems like it seems like they still have a lot to work through. But I liked that we finally got a Maeve chapter because so far we've only had like an Adelina chapter. We've had Raffaele chapters. And was that? And Ter- we've had Taryn. Taryn's perspective. It is kind of weird how like the chapters are all different characters and it's not it's not really the only one that that is first person is Adelina's right I think so and the, yes and the others are just like from their perspective but I think we've only <laughs> had <laughs> Toby do you want do you have something to say <laughs> um yeah we've only had a couple we've only had Adelina Taryn and Raffaella chapters but we finally got a Maeve chapter so I liked um I don't know I hope we have more than more of that and get to see her we saw her at the very end of the first book, and that yeah, but we didn't yeah. I think I read something about Marie Lou talking about how much harder it is to write in the third person. I oh think really? I read an article about that. I should try to find that before next week. No, oh, that'd be good. Okay, so what are we gonna do for next week? We're gonna finish. Oh, we're no, we're gonna start the Midnight Star, which is the third book. Mm-hmm. Um, and we decided we were gonna read up to page one fifty six through one page fifty six. So the first. Um, chapter that we won't read. It'll be uh, Maggiano. Oh, we're getting we're gonna get a Maggiano chapter too. Oh, that's exciting! I can't Yay. wait to see that. Um, so stop when you get to the Maggiano chapter, and uh, listen to our podcast. And I can read the um, back of the book too. Please do. I actually have a hard copy because um, Marie Lou signed my copy of Midnight Star. That is, I'm so jealous. So I know I like get to look at her signature every time I read this. Here's the um, back of the book, The Midnight Star. There was once a time when darkness shrouded the world and the darkness had a queen. Adelina Montero is done suffering. She's turned her back on those who have betrayed her and achieved the ultimate revenge, victory. Her reign as the white wolf has been a triumphant one, but with each conquest, her cruelty only grows. The darkness within her has begun to spiral out of control, threatening to destroy all she's gained. When a new danger appears, Adelina is forced to revisit old wounds, putting not only herself at risk, but every elite. In order to preserve her empire, Adelina and her roses must join the daggers on a perilous quest, though this uneasy alliance may prove to be the real danger. Ooh. Ooh. And I still feel like we didn't get enough of Sergio kind of confronting the daggers. I mean, the, uh... Yeah. I wanted to see a showdown with him and Raphael and Enzo. Maybe. I mean, if they, I if they so. join forces, maybe they'll have to have some more conversations about it. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, so it seems like they are going to join up eventually. That'll be fun. <laughs> I wonder what the new threat is, though. If it's... Yeah. Anyways. Okay. Anyways. All right. Um, was there anything else you had? I had a brief little thing about the Barilla creatures that I really... Because I really liked those, those creatures. Yeah, they are really cool. Tell me. Well, okay, so they're kind of like, they are like manta rays, right? But they swim and they fly, right? Yep. Because that's what Gemma was riding when she flew too close to the storm. Um, So I was trying to find, like, what the equivalent would be. And the closest I could get was, um, so there are manta rays that are called Amberostris. That's like the species. And they can reach 23 feet or 7 meters in width. Wow. And they weigh 13... They wait. They weigh thirteen hundred and fifty kilograms or kilos, and or two thousand nine hundred eighty pounds. Oh my goodness! The biggest ones. So you could definitely ride that. 
<laughs> we could all ride that. I know. We could take a school trip on that. <laughs> Be like a school bus. So I thought that was kind of cool. That it's cool. She took like manta rays, but then made them fly. That was a, that was just a cool scene, like picturing because it, it wasn't just Gemma riding one, right? Like it sounds like mm. they're like kind of trained as something that lots of people ride, like other soldiers well, I think, and stuff. No, I think Gemma was controlling them. Oh, all of them. Yeah, and then Magiano. Oh, and then Magiano. I was gonna say because, but I thought even the Inquisitors were on them, and I thought they oh. were talking about like um, tricks, like at oh. the in the arena when they were in the first book. I thought they said something about where the trainer the boat. The, their trainers used to, or maybe I'm like just making things up I kind of got the sense that they were sort of like a semi-tamed like a horse or like a oh whatever. I missed that but maybe I'm wrong because that would right. be really cool because then Gemma's riding them wouldn't have been as impressive so maybe I'm wrong unless she just rides random ones I don't know I don't or maybe know. she just makes them go really fast <laughs> if there's a movie I am very excited to see how they do the Baleras because yeah that would be really cool I really like magical creatures all right. Um, yeah, that's all I had for today. Perfect. Okay. We will see each other next week. Sounds good. Oh, my joke. Oh, whoa. Oh, my God. We almost forgot the joke. <laughs> I would have been so sad. Okay, it's your turn, right? Yeah. Okay, so first of all, I realized I was thinking of this joke, and then I was like, this might not make sense for people who don't have Safeways. Do you have Safeway in Mm-mm. Chicago? Okay, well, it's just a grocery store. It's like oh. um, it's like their jewel or whatever. Or dump, I don't know, whatever. Um, in Arizona. So this is a joke that my dad told me and I used to love when I was younger. Or not even that young, like high school. Um, wait, I just forgot it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> How do you get an elephant in a Safeway bag? Um, uh, I don't know. You take the F out of safe and the oh. F out of way. What? <laughs> wait a minute. I didn't follow that. You take the F out of what? Take the F out of safe and the F out of way. There's no F and way. Oh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, that's my silly dad joke for the week. Oh my God, that's so good. I like jokes like that that rely on like you saying things a certain way to get it. Someone's response is trying There's to no F and <laughs> <laughs> They're all alphabet jokes. It's kind of themed with our R and C pirate thing. From oh, us. that's right. <laughs> All right. Well, that made my week. All right. (laughs) I will see you later. Sounds good. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.